this is amazing. Did you watch the TV, the new superhero guy? How cool is that? He's got a cape. Yeah, capes rock. Jacob. I, for one, would definitely fuck his brains out if I got the chance. And Arnie. Where do they get a load of me? As they review the Marvel Misfits Howard the Duck. This is obviously no place for an intelligent, sensitive duck. Man Thing. Oh, yeah, that's a man, all right, huh? It's the Mad Thing, man. And Kick Ass. He should call himself Ass Kick instead. <laughs> Join us at NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for a new installment in this series. And keep coming back as we continue looking at all the Marvel comic book movie adaptations. X-Men, Fantastic Four. You guys never saw One Night in Spider-Man? These podcasts contain detailed plot spoilers and may have foul language. Listener discretion is advised. Okay, you cunts. Let's see what you can do now. All right, you cunts. Today we're talking about Kick-Ass, starring Aaron Johnson, Christopher Mintz-Boss, Chloe Moretz, Nicolas Cage, and Mark Strong, directed by Matthew Vaughn. This is Arnie, Kick-Ass co-host of Now Playing. Stuart in LA. What's up, douches? This is Jacob. And we are discussing Kick-Ass, one of the most recent superhero films that we're going to be discussing in our Marvel comic movie retrospective series. Yeah, I think it actually came out about a year from today. March 2010. Now, why is this a misfit? It certainly wasn't the abomination and the notable flop that the last two misfits have been. But it's kind of a misfit because it kind of is a Marvel movie. It kind of isn't. We had some discussions behind the scenes. Do we include it? Do we not? Because if you start the film, you notice there's no little Marvel flipbook opening. And in fact, the Marv at the beginning does not stand for Marvel at all. It is Matthew Vaughn's production company that he's had long before this movie. And in fact, Marvel threatened to stop production and sue them many, many times. (laughs) I love the taste of irony. And I was surprised, too, that Marvel written some lawsuits over some of the scenes in this movie because they kind of put out the comic. I didn't think they would have as much of a problem with some of the things they did because they paid money to get it published and distributed. Well, Jacob, maybe you can explain to us what this whole imprint creator owned because these characters are published by Marvel, but not owned by Marvel, as I understand it. Yes, Marvel put out the comic, but they don't own the rights to the characters or anything like that. They have different imprints for different audiences. You know, Spider-Man is some of the more mainstream stuff that Punisher and even Howard the Duck. All those characters, they're owned by Marvel. You go and you write those characters or you come up with new characters that show up in a Spider-Man comic, a Howard the Duck comic, a Man-Thing comic. Marvel owns that character. You don't retain any of the rights. You can't go and sell the storyline you came up with to whatever studio to, to make a movie out of it. What Marvel did is they came up with the Icon imprint, which was a much more adult line and it was creator-owned, meaning any characters 
characters that the writers and the artists come up with, they own the rights to it. Yes, Marvel, they make money by distributing it, by printing it. They get their cut, but they don't own the characters. Mark Miller, who who wrote Kick-Ass, and John Romita Jr., who drew it, they keep the rights so they could sell this to whatever studio they want to make money off of it. They could license the characters however they want. They're not part of the proper Marvel universe. Darn. So you mean we aren't going to watch Hit Girl and Howard the Duck and Man Thing go fight crime in another dimension? Uh, no. The- <laughs> Why do I just think Hit Girl would just spear Howard the Duck through the neck and then eat him for dinner? Literally. Because that's what I would do. <laughs> All right, you ducks. Let's see what you can do now. Yes, this is this is a property I don't think Disney will ever incorporate into any of their parades at their theme parks. <laughs> and this one really came about quickly because the comic was still being written. It was an eight issue series when the movie rights were sold. And I guess the screenplay was being written at the same time as the comic. Mark Miller, who wrote this, he's a hype machine. And um, before it even hit the, the comic book shelves, I think the rights were already sold. He's already said this is going to be made into a huge blockbuster movie. I mean, this thing was really fast tracked in a lot of his icon properties. He's got another series that just finished called Nemesis. That's already moved into the movie stage. Another one called Superior, which is going on in the comics right now. And he's saying that's already in the movie stages. So, I mean, it was already fast-tracked to become a movie before the first issue hit the shelves. Well, I don't know much about comics, but I know a little bit about Hollywood works. And that actually makes a whole lot of sense. Because I think if some executives had some time to look at the content and to actually look at what they were making and see that it isn't just another Marvel property, Property, they probably would have hit the pause button pretty quick because well, it, it, I don't know you, why you'd make an R-rated movie for kids, but that's exactly what they did. It's funny you say that, Stuart, because may, maybe I, I don't know all the ins and outs of Hollywood, but one of the things Matthew Vaughn said on the commentary is that Hollywood would not touch the script. He couldn't sell it. And so I guess that's why he had to use his own production company to make this. I'm not sure. To me, it's still a Hollywood movie, but he said Hollywood would not touch the script. I can believe that. It, it was probably just because we're in the throes of a real superhero Marvel hype and and all of the characters it's it feels like are coming out in the movies that this got rushed by a smaller division I it what it did ended up at Lionsgate it's not like this was a major major studio behind this project but Lionsgate they do a little bit more edgy stuff it kind of makes sense but even they must have had pause when they realized that they had made a movie for an audience that wouldn't be allowed to see it I don't know. I mean, this seems very much aimed at the later high school, early college group. I think that this wasn't aimed at the middle school crowd. I don't know that middle schoolers would necessarily have the postmodern sweetness needed to get this movie. Well, and I think that's one of the problems with this movie. I know it underperformed. They expected it to do a lot better. And when I would talk to people, because I, I mean, right now I'll just say I was hyped for this film because I got to go to a test screening, which got me really excited for it uh, when it hit the theaters. But I talked to a lot of people. Why aren't you seeing Kick-Ass? This movie's great. And they're like, well, isn't it a kid's movie? I'm like, it's called Kick-Ass and it's R-rated. Yeah, but it has that little girl in it. It seems like it's a kid's movie. <laughs> I mean, that that's what, at least the people who I talked to that didn't see it, I had no interest that was their perception just based on the trailers that it was for little kids i have to say i don't pay too much attention to movie ratings unless it's like horror and i want to see if it's pg-13 because that means it's gonna suck so i don't think i realized going in that this was r-rated i just bought a ticket and went in it was a little bit stunning 
I really wondered how shocking would this be to an audience that didn't know about the comic, didn't read it, just walked in, oh, here's a superhero movie, what's this going to be about, and then get presented what was presented to them. I, I did not know anything when I saw this movie. I did see it when it came out, but not like opening weekend, and long after it already underperformed at the box office, and Hollywood had written it off as a failure. The only thing I really knew about it, other than the fact that there was a 12-year-old girl that cursed and killed people in it was that there was a real discussion as to why they had put this out, who they were marketing to, and how they thought they could turn a profit. It, the, the Around town, it, it became one of those Emperor Has No Clothes things. Everyone was screaming it was going to be the number one movie of the weekend, and after it came out, everyone was screaming, how could you make this? Well, it was the number one movie of the weekend. It opened at $19 million. According to Box Office Mojo, it only cost $30 million to make. It made 50 domestically, 100 worldwide, so it made money. This isn't Howard the Duck here. I want to correct this because this was contentious. They early announced that Kick-Ass had won, and then when the numbers were actually counted, it's kind of like Al Gore and George Bush. Oh, it, it, there is a note on Box Office Mojo that Lionsgate counted non-weekend Thursday night grosses towards Kick-Ass's weekend gross, and the difference between Kick-Ass and How to Train Your Dragon is so slight that if you took out the Thursday night numbers, it's likely How to Train Your Dragon would be number one. Right. Lionsgate did everything that it could to present the idea that it was number one. But in fact, when given over the same time frame, it was not. It still made money overall. It, uh, it's not a bomb. It just underperformed. I want to clarify that. Do you work for Lionsgate, Ernie? <laughs> you sound like one of their apologists. The movie did not make money for Lionsgate. I can tell you that. The cost of, of marketing this worldwide, they got their ass kicked. <laughs> and I, I don't think if there were a sequel to be made to this, Lionsgate would necessarily be involved. And of course, there's talk of a sequel. The sequel comic has just started coming out. There's been one issue in the past six months. Hey, it took two years for eight issues to come out. I was wondering if they were going to get the final issue of the first story out before the movie actually came out. I mean, they had already sold the movie rights. That's where you really make the money in comics, unfortunately, That with a lot of this stuff. So I, they kind of took their time getting this comic out. So I, I'm not surprised only one issue of Kick-Ass 2 Balls to the Wall has come out thus far. That also may explain why it didn't even perform better given the limited market for it. I mean, if Kick-Ass had been a notorious comic in the way that I would say Watchmen had for decades, perhaps it would have had a bigger opening. Let me say this, though. Kick-Ass, the, when they collected it in hardcover and softcover as, as one graphic novel, it was the top-selling graphic novel for Marvel in 2010. Okay. People bought it. The problem is the comic crowd is so small compared to the general public that you yes. could have something that's a huge comic kick. Look at Scott Pilgrim. Huge in the comic book world, flop when it goes to Hollywood. That is true. It's very rare actually where they can rely on just the fans of any book. I mean, any popular book, even Da Vinci Code, they crunch the numbers and if only the people that read the book go and see the movies, they lose money. You have to get people that don't read <laughs> to be interested. The other thing I didn't know about going in was this director, Matthew Vaughn. Now, Matthew Vaughn is directing this summer's X-Men The First Class. I knew nothing about him before Kick-Ass. I have heard of Layer Cake. I remember making fun of 
Stardust at San Diego Comic-Con in 2007, only to have a couple of fangirls really take me to task. But I'm sorry, that trailer looked abysmal. Well, I don't do much fantasy, even when it's good. So, yeah, I don't know any of his work before seeing this. You haven't seen Layer Cake? No, I don't really like those British. Like, I don't like Guy Ritchie. It seemed like a Guy Ritchie ripoff. Well, in fact, he did produce Guy Ritchie's Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels and Snatch, two movies I just love. So Same here. So, I think we can all agree that this film underperformed so why don't we just do a plot summary for the very many listeners who probably never saw the film the film focuses on dave lazuski a teenager unhappy in his current day-to-day life his mother passed away he's ignored by girls he's regularly mugged by neighborhood thugs and he's tired of just escaping into his comic book world dave wants to take it a step further and try to make that world a reality by donning a wetsuit and becoming a costumed crime fighter named kick-ass However, with no training and no superpowers, on his first crime-fighting patrol, Dave takes a severe beating that leaves him hospitalized and requires months to recover. As a result of his injuries, he has permanent nerve damage that allow him to endure pain and surgical implants that make his bones much stronger than normal. Once recovered and with these new enhancements, Dave returns to school by day and crime-fighting by night. One evening, while trying to find a lost cat, he accidentally comes upon some gang violence and starts fighting off three thugs, and this fight is caught by camera phone and released onto YouTube, and Kick-Ass becomes an internet hero. He starts using MySpace for people to contact him for help. But by day, rumors about Dave's sexuality have led Katie, the girl he likes, to take him as a friend, and he plays along to spend more time with her. When Katie reveals she's being harassed by a drug dealer, Kick-Ass goes to confront the dealer. The dealer's gang defeat Kick-Ass and are about to kill him when he's rescued by another costume superhero, 11-year-old Hit Girl, who emotionlessly kills the dealers and rescues Kick-Ass. Hit Girl introduces Kick-Ass to her father, Big Daddy, a former cop in a Batman-type cape and cowl. Big Daddy was a cop named Damon McReady, framed by local mob boss Frank D'Amico while in prison for crimes he didn't commit, his wife killed herself, and upon his release from prison, Big Daddy's only goal was vengeance against D'Amico. Regaining custody of his daughter Mindy, the two trained constantly in hand-to-hand combat and firearms usage, both obsessed with taking D'Amico down. They'd made several strikes on D'Amico's organization, which D'Amico begins to blame Kick-Ass for as he's the most famous masked crime fighter. When D'Amico's men are unable to find Kick-Ass using conventional means, D'Amico's snobby son Chris, who Dave knew from the comic book store, takes on the identity of crime fighter Red Mist. Using his father's money to create a gadget-filled Mistmobile, Red Mist befriends Kick-Ass. Kick-Ass introduces Red Mist to Hit-Girl and Big Daddy, and D'Amico's men capture Kick-Ass and Big Daddy, while Hit-Girl is shot and falls out a window, presumably dead. D'Amico decides to torture and kill the two heroes on a live webcast to dissuade anyone else from becoming a masked crime fighter. Hit-Girl appears and kills the mobsters, but during the fight, one of D'Amico's men set Big Daddy on fire and he dies from the burns. Burning with rage, Hit-Girl plans a final assault on D'Amico's condo and convinces a guilt-wracked Kick-Ass to help her. Hit-Girl attacks, killing most of D'Amico's men, but runs out of ammo when Kick-Ass, armed with a jetpack strapped to his back, flies to the penthouse window and kills the remaining mobsters. The fight comes down to Hit-Girl versus D'Amico and Kick-Ass against the Red Mist. Kick-Ass shoots D'Amico with a bazooka and Red Mist is knocked out. With the crime boss defeated, Mindy returns to live with her father's former police partner and enrolls at school, trying to live a normal life, while Dave gives up his crime-fighting persona to enjoy day-to-day life with new girlfriend Katie. And we see the exploits of Kick-Ass, Big Daddy, and Hit-Girl have inspired a new flock of superheroes in the city. And in the last scene, we see Red Mist donning a mask, preparing revenge, and quoting Jack Nicholson saying, wait till they get a load of me. 
Isn't that a DC character? Yes, that's the Joker from Batman. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, well. But it, it's really from the movie. I mean, you, you never see that in a Batman comic. So they're riffing off the movie. And, and this movie, I, I think, does a great job riffing off of other superhero movies. So I, I thought it was appropriate. Absolutely. The first thing I saw, and again, I knew nothing about this movie going in. I just have to stress that. I knew there was a guy in a green suit named Kick-Ass with no powers. And there was a little girl in a purple wig. That's all I knew. So I go in. And I immediately realized that what I'm seeing is a parody of superhero films, not like a scary movie type parody, but a, a smarter parody. And what I really feel is the target in the sights is Sam Raimi's original Spider-Man with the voiceover and the training montages and the origin story. It feels very much like a send up of that film. Well, I, I mentioned I went to the test screening of this, which I wasn't a big fan of the comic book, but I'm always up for a free movie. And one of the things that they changed between the theatrical release and the test screening was a lot of the music. The test screening, that opening scene where you have this superhero standing on top of the skyscraper about to jump off and fly away. I mean, they use the Superman theme song from the Richard Donner film, the John Williams theme, which was just awesome. It instantly set the tone, juxtaposing that that great John Williams theme versus this character that just falls to his death. They use stuff from the Tim Burton Batman films. So they used a lot of those musical cues, I guess, just to fill in the gaps until the actual score was done. I kind of wish they kept those theatrical superhero scores just because they really drove home some of the satire that was going on in this movie. I, I thought they were great cues. So I was kind of sad to see that they changed that. But yeah, there's the scene where Kick-Ass opens his shirt up. It's, it's straight from Christopher Reeve, uh, you know, going from Clark Kent to Superman. Yeah, I think there's a lot of Spider-Man parody in this because that's probably the most recent, most popular superhero movie. But they give nods to other superhero films in this as well. You know, I don't know much about comics. I am the newbie when it comes to this whole genre and the series. But uh, I do know movies and I can spot the influence of the comic book movies in this film. I got a real strong aroma of Tarantino in this. In the same way that Tarantino went back and used decades of old crime, horror, and exploitation flicks to influence his movies, I definitely got the same sense that Vaughn was using all of the superhero movies of the past couple decades, the iconic ones, and I'm guessing maybe even some of the obscure ones, to create this world and to subvert it. This feels like both it's honoring the cliches and subverting the cliches of what we've come to know what a superhero movie is. Absolutely, and I think it does that just right. It hits the right balance because, I mean, I've seen superhero movie, and we're not covering that in this retrospective or any retrospective ever. Is that one of those epic movies? Yes. yes. Scary movies? Yes. Okay. Oh, it's bad. If this had been that kind of a let's make fun of the superhero genre straight out, I think it would have failed on its premise. This is one of those comedies that does one part make fun of the superhero genre while at the other part fitting in and using some of the tropes from superhero films to be itself a superhero film. I mean, one of the big themes in the comic book, and they mentioned it a little bit in the movie, I don't feel they run as far with it, but one of the themes is, hey, this is what superheroes would be like in real life. I, I don't really buy it the way the movie or the story plays out. I still think it goes into pretty superhero realm. But yeah, they're trying to say if someone did dress up as a spider, this is how it would turn out. They'd end up getting hit by a car and breaking every bone in their body. 
body, you know. So it's definitely playing off those cliches, but it's giving them a spin. There, there's definitely some thinking behind what they're doing here. Absolutely, and I, I think I want to mention at this point, there's real superheroes out there. You know, I've seen them on the news once in a while. They are crazy ass people in crazy ass costumes who patrol the streets trying to stop crimes. And I think one actually did stop a crime in Phoenix or something like that, and he was on Good Morning America or something. So this is happening. Arnie, I need to make a confession. True story. You did this? I've said I'm the comic book geek, and my best friend's a comic book geek. And we came up with superhero personas for ourselves. They were absurd. He was the proletariat Avenger, whose power was that he could take on the intellect and strength of the masses. So he's incredibly strong and incredibly dumb. Um, and and I, I, I was going through a phase in my life where I liked to wear a lot of Hawaiian shirts. So I was a Hawaiian shirt guy where I took on the powers of camouflage because Hawaiian shirts are camouflage. Uh, they got leaves on them. And I could also take on the ability of uh, party guy because party guys always wear Hawaiian shirts. So I had the strength of an inebriated man. Um, and, and we did make costumes and we went on patrol once. We didn't have any thoughts of actually stopping any crimes. It was more more of a art performance piece <laughs> but uh yes um I, i've personally done this <laughs> that's awesome Diego. i just want to say thank you for sharing that this is awesome everyone in their life at some point does it i would just like to say i did it at six you know with, <laughs> yeah. with underoos but yeah at, at some point everyone likes the idea of being able to put on an outfit look cool and suddenly be powerful i mean one of the things that really sticked out with kick-ass is i don't know how familiar you guys are with Watchmen, but that that's a story very much about how anyone that wants to be a superhero has some kind of mental deficiency. <laughs> I mean, that that's kind of one of the strong themes Alan Moore has running through Watchmen. And, and Kick-Ass kind of seems like a Watchmen light to me. Instead of saying, hey, what kind of grown-ups with m- mental illness want to become a superhero like Watchmen does? This is like taking it from the comic book geek teenage perspective and saying, you know, they're still not all right in the head. But, you know, this is the kind of people that would be pushed to become a Spider-Man or, or you know, a Johnny Storm, those, those younger uh, superheroes. God, let's hope nobody tries to become Johnny Storm. They'll end up like Big Daddy in this movie. <laughs> Who's Johnny Storm? The Human Torch. The Human Torch. (laughs) We'll get there this summer. (laughs) Oh, good. I can't wait. I laughed out loud in that opening scene where the guy's jumping off the building. I I thought it was kick-ass. You got the narration. You got the everything going on. And he falls into a car. And when I watched it for this retrospective, this was my third time seeing this movie. I still laughed out loud at that. I was a little confused that we never go back to it or even... Do, do we ever see in the movie that who that character is? No. And in the comic, you know, you see kick-ass starts influencing more of the culture to dress up in the comic. You don't really get that here. I mean, you kind of see it at the beginning which is really the end issue number eight of kick-ass it ends with this guy dressed up in you know in his bird costume getting in the elevator and and taking the elevator up so the ties aren't as strong in the movie it's kind of played off just more as a joke here it would have been stronger if they'd had a shot of some superheroes because at the end in the very end voiceover they talk about the city having a city of superheroes but you don't see it so it just doesn't drive it home as strong there is a little bit of that i mean i got that just from there's a, a scene in the middle 
middle of the movie where someone's going to a kick-ass themed birthday party in the outfit and it actually gets them killed. And it's making the news. There is the costume, which was always a commercially sold what was it a wetsuit or a ski suit or yeah, just or what a wetsuit. Yeah, you know that's commercially available on mannequins, and I get that a little bit. I just wondered if I missed something, like maybe the barista in the comic book store is actually the guy that ends up on the ledge. That would have been a really nice touch, honestly. It would have been very cool. Are there cool comic book shops that serve espresso? <laughs> Uh, there's none in L.A. New York has some huge comic book shops. I know they do some cool promotions where they have like comics and cookies. Uh, but I was thinking the same thing, Arnie. I'm like, I want to go to this comic book store. It all goes well, gentlemen, until someone spills hot coffee on their issue number one Spider-Man. And then there are tears <laughs> and lawsuits. Very good point, Stuart. <laughs> See, you are a comic book geek. You get the culture. <laughs> well, I know, I know how it is to be uh, anal. So we see Dave, and he's the son of a single father. We get that his mother died of an aneurysm. I like all the little montage of what he's not. You know, he's not avenging his mother and all this. But I want to say right now, I think this is going to be one of the smarter films in this entire series. I think there's some themes going on here because it seems like all of our characters are missing a mother figure. We have Dave, who has no mother. We have Hit Girl, whose mother died before she was born. And then we've got Red Mist, who has a mother, but she's strangely absent for the vast majority of this movie. Yes, in this movie I saw it inversely, Arnie. I noticed that everyone was looking towards a father for role modeling in this. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Usually it's the father that's absent, and this is a movie full of fathers. Maybe not the best fathers, but (laughs) I I think again, that plays up to the comic book thing because it is so male-dominated usually is that, you know, what happens when you don't have this softening influence in your life, uh, playing up to gender stereotypes? But what, What happens when you don't have that? What happens when you just have the masculinity around you even if you're just a little girl i mean not all the heroes in here are boys there's a little girl and what happens to her when she's just raised by a father and she's kind of a tomboy i mean at the very end the crime boss says i wish i had a son like you yeah i mean we definitely have three different male figures and they all fail their i would say fail their children in distinct ways i mean dave dad is just he is an absentee dad he's still alive but he's not involved in his son's life at all. I mean, 18 months pass. I like the line. The only thing we ever really know about him is 18 months pass since the wife dies, and he's like, did something change on the cereal box? I mean, he's not clued in at all about what's going on with this kid's life as he's growing up and developing this whole alternate identity. And the only time he really shows uh, you know, any concern for Dave is at the hospital, and he's like, well, you know, they found you naked. Were you raped or anything? I mean, very much playing it up to that old, you know, you gotta be manly and you can't, you know, avoid that homosexual stuff. That's the only time he ever shows any concern for his son. And it's weak. I mean, it's not like he really wants to. He's embarrassed to ask. And as soon as his son is like, Dad, he's like, okay, I'm dropping it. You know, like he just, <laughs> he, he does not feel comfortable being a dad. He does not feel comfortable being a role model or, or a person that his son can come to speak to. I kind of got the impression at the beginning that he was disappointed in his son. You know, because later on in the film, when he's kick-ass and he's got the girlfriend and everything, you get that one scene. It's very brief, but where the father's like, your mother would be so proud to see you coming out of your shell. And he's happy that his son's straight. He's got a girlfriend. He's not getting mugged anymore. And 
from that, I'm inferring that, you know, at the beginning, he's kind of like unhappy with his son, you know? Yes, but he doesn't go to the lengths bringing up another father. He doesn't go to the lengths that Damon or Big Daddy does to make his son into a man. He's very much hands off as opposed to Big Daddy, who, you know, is literally named after a father figure <laughs> who's very involved in his child's life. And you kind of see that extreme going wrong, too. Now, I want to talk about Big Daddy because they're introduced fairly early in the film, even though they don't become a major part of it till about halfway in. Now, I saw the opening credits. I see Nicolas Cage. I didn't know Nicolas Cage was in this movie when I go into the theater. And you don't know what kind of Nicolas Cage you're going to get in the movie. That's that's <laughs> even the bigger worry. <laughs> that That's very true. But here's my mindset is, oh, there's a big star in this movie. I didn't see him in any trailer. He must be the villain. I don't know who the villain is. And the very first scene, we're in this like sewer area and there's a little girl that he's about to shoot with a gun. And I start to get a little sick. I'm like, oh, fuck. This is going to be just hard if he's slaughtering children. You know, we start off with this laugh moment and I have this my heart just sinks that we're going to have this contrast of a child murderer played by Nick Cage with a creepy mustache. And I I didn't know where this was going. And so that scene where he shoots her and it's all a test, the movie played me because I didn't know what to expect. I thought he was going to kill her. And then you see this really weird affection between the two and how he's going to take her bowling if she gets shot two more times. And It's the most healthy father-child relationship in the movie. But of course, what's wrong with it is glaringly apparent to everyone. But as far as actual love and communication, they have that. It's very different from Dave and his dad. They, it's just a subversion, as this movies want to do, of what we think of as normal and healthy. And I just have to say, this scene where Nicolas Cage is shooting his daughter, this scene, I think, could have just destroyed the movie if it wasn't done right. They got it pitch perfect. The, the tone, the way he talks. I, I just love the way he talks to his daughter. Good call, baby doll. Like Just the way Hit Girl responds, Mindy responds to him. I mean, they got the tone just right. This movie could have, if this scene wasn't done right with, with this father shooting his daughter, you know, even though she had a bulletproof jacket on, if, if the tone came off wrong, if it came off too dark or, or, or too frivolous, I think they got it just right to set the tone of this movie. I completely agree. And where it really hit me how right it was, was the continuation of the scene where they're eating ice cream in the bowling alley. And she kind of messes with her dad's head by saying she wants a fluffy puppy and a Bratz doll. Yes. I mean, obviously we're thinking once we understand that the dad is training his daughter to be a killer or at least to be able to withstand abuse we're thinking oh this poor girl our feelings are going to her she's having no childhood well it's because chloe moretz is so gleeful in this role and we'll, i'm sure we'll get there when she finally assumes the hit girl persona but after the scene in the bowling alley we aren't concerned for how she's being traumatized anymore we, she's loving it and we're loving her love it it's great when she's talking about that fluffy puppy Nicolas Cage's face the acting he just does with it's very subtle he kind of swallows and his eyebrows kind of go into the, the this worry formation is what the hell's gone wrong with my daughter that she wants a brat stall but they work so well together it, it seems natural it seems like he's actually raised his daughter to be this psychotic killer subtle for Nick Cage I'll say yes for yes. Nick Cage <laughs> yes <laughs> and we we took Nick to Cage to text 
in next, but I got to say he can still be very, very good. He can still pull out enjoyably cartoonish performances. And this is one of those. Well, you know, after Ghost Rider, it's nice to see him in a good comic book movie. <laughs> we'll get to <laughs> Ghost Rider eventually. But I'm a conditional fan of Nick Cage. But most of the stuff he's made since winning his Oscar has been utter, utter shit. And I honestly, I've tried to think this may be the best performance I've seen him give since leaving Las Vegas. I am partial to adaptation, and I also liked him. He did a riff on the Harvey Keitel early indie movie, Bad Lieutenant, recently. Very enjoyable in that movie. I No, I, he can still bring real joy to a movie with his crazy ideas. It's You just got to be careful with how you use them. I love the fact that Nick Cage is here doing what he's doing, and I love the fact that he's not the lead. I think that also helps is that he is just this crazy energy that comes in and out of the movie at certain times, but he is not the star. One of the things about Nick Cage, he always brings something to a character, be it body pressing women for strength or golden guns or an obsession with jelly beans. I couldn't figure out what it would be in this movie other than possibly the mustache or the voice. I couldn't figure out which. It was the voice. He just, yes. when he dresses up as Big Daddy, he takes on the persona of Adam West as Batman, which I, oh my gosh, just, I was out out loud laughing. Like, I got it right away what he's doing. So again, it's one of those risky moves. It could totally throw off the tone of the movie, but it works. Yeah, that really was a winner. I remember being in the theater and everyone loving that when he talks in that modulated, you know, Adam West just has pregnant pauses in a regular speech. We don't know why, but... <laughs> All of the sudden, he just <laughs> needs to do this. You know, it, it's like Shatner without the emphasis. <laughs> yes, exactly. He's not trying to emote. It's he's downplaying. It's a deadpan Shatner. It's great. And yeah, Cage was right. We want this movie to tap into all that we know about comic book characters. And that's one that everyone knows. Everyone knows 1960s Batman. And then finally, we're introduced to Frank D'Amico and his son, Chris. And these are the villains of this film. But yet, Chris, we first get introduced to in the comic book store. And again, I said this is a bit of a smarter movie. I almost feel like we have a bit of a doppelganger thing going on between Dave and Chris, where both of them are sons of these, again, as we mentioned, influential fathers. They both hang out at the same comic book store, and they, they kind of know each other from the comic book store. There's a scene in the beginning where Dave tries to approach Chris, and Chris kind of looks up and smiles like, hey, I'm going to have a friend. And then the bodyguard gets in the way and just says fuck off and i really liked these characters i, I chris who is played by i want to call him mclovin uh, he's mclovin <laughs> he'll always be mclovin there's no getting away from it he's mclovin <laughs> and i think that he really brought something to that role that i i liked and i liked seeing him on screen you know it, you're right he is mclovin i've seen him in a lot of non-mclovin stuff though i'm i'm sad to say i have seen year one and i have oh. seen role models mm, okay this this is, I think, his best non-McLovin performance. I don't doubt that. <laughs> and to be fair, he's not doing McLovin here. I mean, he is isolated and, and nerdy, but he is not the irrepressible geek that he was in Superbad. I mean, you're right. He very much feels like someone that's trapped behind glass, that wants to be normal, that wants to be with other kids. And because his dad has mob ties and because he's so sheltered by these crime bosses, he can't do it. 
And you're right. There is a part of him, and it plays out when they form their superhero characters, of wanting to have a friend and wanting to do stuff with kids and not adults. What Again, speaking about the father-son relationship, you have Dave and his dad where there's really no involvement. You have Big Daddy and Hit Girl where obviously the father is manipulating the child. And then you have Frank and his son Chris who they kind of have a relationship there. Chris actually – I think Chris wants a Big Daddy type dad. He wants to be involved in the business. But they have a relationship. There's that great scene early on where they're sitting in their car outside the lumber mill that his dad owns. There's a person being murdered in there. You can hear him scream. (laughs) and yelling gunshots and they're like yeah so when we get to the movie what do you want popcorn coke diet coke i mean you you get this great little rapport between the two of them um and it's it's funny because you get that juxtaposition with the screaming and the yelling but they kind of have this relationship but the dad is still kind of distant he doesn't want him in the business probably because he doesn't feel he could live up to the demands of being a mob boss but i just think it's it, it this movie is a lot smarter than i think people would assume it to be now jacob how true is all of this to the comic is this something that miller came up with or is this something that vaughn came up with matthew vaughn and jane goldman they really developed the characters better than the comic did they, they made them more likable which i think you need i didn't like this comic book very much because i didn't care about any of the characters because they're all so despicable big daddy and hit girl you're gonna get the biggest change there big daddy you know you might feel in this film that he's kind of despicable for brainwashing his daughter and, and bringing her in, into this life of violence it's even worse in the comic he's not this who was framed and he lost his wife to suicide and so he decides to go on this story of vengeance no in in the comic he's like an insurance salesman who's just bored with his life abducts the daughter leaves and he just has this collection of rare comic books he would sell to fund this war on crime not really likable not a whole lot is done with frank and chris d'amico chris he's not so much of a mclovin character he's much more of a, a manly character in the comic but no i i think none of them more likable and here they might be doing crazy things you know big daddy awful father brainwashing his daughter but you like them they got personality there's things you could grasp on onto dave he's a loser but he's also going on this hero's journey so you could kind of like him that's one of the things i really liked about this movie is that there were characters i cared about it just wasn't this you know slog fest where everyone's just despicable and you just don't like anything they're doing wow that does sound really dark and caustic as dark as this movie is it's very classic in its formula and and who it asked you to root for i mean for the most part you know where your your allegiances lie you know who you want to like we know that we're rooting for kick-ass and we you know you talk about not liking what he's doing to his daughter we still like them and secretly we want to be the mccready's i mean what they have is awesome even though we know it's not sustainable in the real world they are living comic book characters that is the way to play that and you know that relationship when i was watching it for this podcast i really had to analyze it because i love their chemistry i love their humor when they're on screen this movie's magical but they're also you know some of the most fantastical characters there they're the most classical superhero batman and robin type admittedly with a bit more bite as they kill people mercilessly but this time i'm trying to analyze is it wrong to root for them because here you do see they call it out in the movie when Nicolas Cage's former police partner comes and he's like you're brainwashing this girl and you're not letting her have a real life you're not letting her have a childhood you know the movie does approach those questions and I I almost wonder if it's a disingenuous approach because when you 
portray these characters as so fun and funny and amazing, then it's hard to think of that as unhealthy. You're right. We do wish we had that kind of relationship with our own parents. And I think this movie works on two levels. If you just go in and it's just this crazy superhero action film, I think it works. If you want to really examine it, I think there's material there to examine. Hey, let's look at Big Daddy and Hit Girl. What's really going on there? Oh, he's using comic books. He's using this children's entertainment to brainwash his daughter as, you know, he creates his own comics in this movie. You know, no, it, it doesn't wear its message on its sleeve like Watchmen does. And, and I kind to like it for that. I mean, this is a movie that I could sit there and smile and enjoy. And yeah, but it, it also brings a critical analysis to the superhero genre. Jacob, the whole time I was watching this, I was thinking of you because it really reminded me of RoboCop and Vorhoven's sensibilities, the way he's able to use over-the-top violence for laughs and to get at the base animal in you. And at the same time, it is a challenge. He is seeing if you can handle it and, and asking you what you think about violent entertainment. I mean, where it really became clear to me is near the end when Hit Girl has to go and do the big save and they film it exactly like a first-person shooter that any kid her age would be playing at home on their video game system. But yeah, it, it's a total first-person shooter during that scene, and I thought that was great. You may not like it when you're watching it on the screen and watching children doing the killing, but that's exactly what they're consuming in their in entertainment all the time. And I, I think it's important to realize that. I give the movie major props for not aging these characters, because I'm sure the temptation would have been, can't we make Hit Girl... 17. They would turn the character that's his love interest into Hit Girl. So the movie spends just the right amount of time, I feel, setting up Dave's everyday life so we get a feeling for it so that when he starts the transition to kick ass, we get to see the juxtaposition of his status. And he dons that ridiculous outfit. And also kudos to them for not making the outfit cool. <laughs> Yeah, they wanted it to look silly. They used a wetsuit. And one of the things Matthew Vaughn said is they wanted outfits that you could go and buy on eBay. You know, Big Daddy, he uses French right police gear. They wanted suits that they would look like something a superhero would wear, but they also look real life. They look like something, if you wanted to be a superhero in real life, this is how you would look. I, Stuart, I, I know you live out here in L.A. I'm, I'm sure you've been down to Hollywood in front of the Man Chinese Grauman Theater where people dress as Superman and Batman. You see how those characters would look in real life it's not mm. you know christopher nolan's dark knight mm. it's dark but it ain't christopher <laughs> nolan dark. it's yeah that is one of my least favorite areas of town and i do advise all people visiting please see something other than the walk of fame because that is the worst of la right there that strip anyone who wants to see about those man's chinese theater people go watch confessions of a superhero it's one of the rare documentaries i couldn't turn away from yes i'll, I'll give it my endorsement as well but yeah i mean they make him look silly and what i love about this movie is we're watching a superhero movie but vaughn is very good at bringing in the notes to remind you this is the real world and we get that right away when he's about to stop two carjackers and one stab to the gut is the end of the fight, which is, I believe, how it would play out. Yeah, that, and, and then to add insult to injury, he wanders into the street, gets run over, and the guy doesn't even like get out to help him. I mean, it's a very cynical take on the world of, well, here you are and you thought you could change 
change your destiny and actually you're going to die. Yeah, and with the comic book, that's where the first issue ends, right? Where he gets stabbed and then wanders in front of the car, gets smacked by the car. The car just takes off and he's lying in the street, just a bloody pulp. So I knew that going into the movie. How did that scene hit you guys, not knowing what to expect? I mean, was that shocking that it went horribly wrong? I should have expected it after seeing the guy plummet from the roof. It got a laugh out of me, actually, because you know he's not going to die. And just the way it suddenly came to a stop and the way that it, again, just pulls the rug out from under the superhero tropes, I, I found it amusing. I agree. It is a, a satisfying subversion, and it did make me laugh. The stabbing, I could have anticipated because I kind of knew what movie I was watching, and I knew that if they were going to play it realistically, this little geek was not going to be able to get these bullies. But being run over by the stranger and then the stranger abandoning them, that I did not anticipate. But it is New York. Or as close to New York as Toronto, yes. <laughs> <laughs> New York-like, yes. <laughs> and, and you also get that early on when you see the guy in the window watching Dave get mugged and just turning away. That's that's the, I feel like that was far more 80s New York than 21st century New York. Yes. In the 21st century, they pill out their cell phones, take a picture, and call the cops. Well, I don't know that they would. You know, that's an interesting question, and it comes up a little bit later when he's out trying to rescue the cat. What I thought was really a funny subversion was that there's a bunch of teens nearby and they're all sitting around, not really talking to one another, tapped into the internet. And these guys are being beat up outside. They don't care. But all of a sudden, the guy shows up in a funny outfit pretending to be a superhero, and they all got to get out of their chairs and put it on the internet. The only reason that people would take a picture of it is because he's in that suit. And I love that he tells the kid to call 911, and the kid just starts filming it on his phone. I mean, yeah, the costume is what makes them care. There's nothing about the character. It's not the person. Anyone can be the vigilante if they buy the ski suit. And that's sort of the crazy idea they're positing here about if you're crazy enough to try this, make sure you have a good costume. Seems to be the moral. But then it kind of goes a little bit into fantasy land because I, I'm reminded both of Wolverine and Darkman because as a result of this, he can't feel pain, which was Darkman's big thing in Sam Raimi's film. And he also has the stronger metal reinforced bones. They call that right out straight up. I mean, it, he's that's a good thing to do. It lets you know that the characters are as smart as you are. And Marvel was pissed off about that. They try to get that pulled. Oh, come now. They protest too much. This is their brother in. Maybe, maybe it's their redheaded stepchild, but it's still their family. You don't get superpowers by falling into a vat of toxic waste, but uh, you get hit by a car and break every bone in your body and get replaced with titanium bones. Well, yeah, that, okay. You don't feel pain, or at least you can take a couple punches that way. And that feels very contemporary. I mean, that's what they've been doing with the Batman series. That's what they've been doing. Uh, you know, I feel like that reaching for plausibility is kind of what we've been after in this decade as we've rebooted so many of our classic characters. It's how do we really make this seem believable after these characters have become so overblown and, and cartoonish. And I, I appreciated the fact that this movie, as cartoonishly violent as it gets, does not lose sight of that. I think I always do better when the filmmakers are trying to demonstrate a reality to their fantasy. Yes, they, they, their faces still look like bruised, bloody messes after a fight. They might not feel the pain, but they, they look mm -hmm. awful. Yeah, some of these fights are brutal, which we will go to the one outside the donut shop that you just mentioned, Jacob. It's a great film 
filmed fight. It's very exciting, very actiony. It's a great kind of fight that you want in an action film. But by the same token, wow, is it bloody and just harsh. Yeah, it doesn't look like they pull a lot of punches in this. I mean, it's brutal. I mean, it, and again, this this movie kind of wants to play with the whole, what if there were superheroes in real life? Yeah, this, this is, you know, they wouldn't be pulling out all the cool gadgets like Batman would. You know, you might have a stick and you're still going to take a few punches and probably break a few bones. Well, the difference between Christian Bale's Batman and this Aaron Johnson's kick-ass is the fact that it, Dave Luzuski's broke. I mean, if he had an unlimited funding, if he had what Chris D'Amico had, he could be Batman. But all he can afford to do is buy a wetsuit and call himself a, a superhero. So he really is powerless. He can be abused, but he can't really fight back. And he really sets his expectations low. I mean, his first super mission was to find a cat. Mr. Bitey. I kind of like that. And he didn't even do it. I got to say, he found the cat. That cat never got home. Two things that I love that really hit me in this scene, though. First of all, Jacob, you talked about how you wish they'd kept the original score, the temp score they used. Fuck that. I love the music in this film. I just love it. There's a number of different composers working on it. They use some dance music from The Prodigy and some other stuff. It really, it hits during the Armenian scene where they've got, like, the john williams-esque music but this entire movie the score is spot on and it just is 21st century and exciting and i had to get a copy of the score from the uk just because i like the music so well i'll agree with you arnie i missed some of the cues that they had when i saw the test screening but overall i think this is a fantastic score the musical cues they use in this there's scenes that i think about in this movie that are so tied to the music you know i wouldn't expect a kind of a low budget indie superhero movie to really invest as much as they do in the score the score was running late they only finished it like a week before the final print was done but there's some great musical choices in this film i want to just clarify you guys are talking about the orchestral stuff i'm talking about everything the orchestral stuff the pop music they use i mean we'll we'll, we'll get into some of the pop music they use well yeah that that, that's my question is i'm definitely with you on the orchestral stuff and the marius de vries sort of uh electronica stuff uh, the banana splits <laughs> Narls barkley's crazy i mean they work uh the only one i might thought of actually been not quite up to their standards was bad reputation but when they actually use pop music it called attention to itself when it used everything else i felt like it enhanced what was going on and there's this weird blurry line between what is score and what is pop music because they use some pop music just instrumental pop music or dance music electronica as score music but overall yeah i like just about all of the music in this film there's a couple of scenes there's a bit of score reuse here john murphy (laughs) did the score to this and he did the score to 28 days later and he actually just recycles some music outright there and but come on arnie that that piece of music is awesome oh it's it's fucking great it is it's it's like clint mansell's theme from Requiem for a dream that they use in a ton of movies i mean i've heard it a million times but it's awesome it really is it just i guess i watched 28 days later more than most people because it immediately was like oh it's the music from 28 days later well that fucking rocks but it's the music from 28 days later and again that's a tarantino touch tarantino calls from things that already exist the people that know about it will get it they'll be in on the joke and the people that don't are being introduced to something that's awesome i mean 
mean, that's as an archivist, that's what Tarantino does. That's what Matthew Vaughn is doing here. The only thing I'm shocked about is the fact that they used the Elvis song and didn't use it with Nicolas Cage. How did that happen? <laughs> I mean, I, I think that would be contractually required. Nicolas Cage has been living like Elvis for decades. Hell, he married his daughter. I know. He's, <laughs> he was living in Elvis. It, I know. It's truly, he's, it's been a, ooh, I'm not going there. (laughs) Anyway. Another great choice, I think, is that despite how many superhero movies have been made in the 21st century, this is the first one that feels like a 21st century superhero because how does he get his fame and recognition? YouTube and social networking sites. Yeah, they chose MySpace instead of Facebook, so that dates it a little, but. Yes, it it, it didn't quite feel dated when I saw the test screening, but watching it this time, I'm like, oh yeah, MySpace, that's a thing that exists it isn't it <laughs> and then we kind of get back to dave's real life for a little bit and everybody thinks he's gay and he's hanging out with katie now this joke i got because <laughs> batman and robin the rumor has always been there that they you know like so that's what they're playing with i got that one quick is yes the superhero the classic superhero i have a secret identity where i dress up and go out at night it's always uh, been alleged by our uh, pop cultural educators as possibly being a veiled metaphor for homosexuality. And so I love the fact that they just make it overt and the fact that everyone thinks this guy is gay and he uses that to his advantage. I thought that was clever. I also found it a double juxtaposition because he now has two secret identities, right? He has his kick-ass secret identity and then he has his straight secret identity. But like Clark Kent putting on the glasses and being nerdy, it also is like Dave's fake persona of well i'm gay so there's you know nobody's gonna assume him as kick-ass i like that storyline he has to come out of the closet both as straight and as kick-ass to her by the end it plays it as this moment of tension is she gonna reject him or accept him and they fall madly in love and totally different than the comic book he, he tells katie the truth and she's like you're a loser you're a creep and she like she'll go and perform oral sex on other guys and take pictures of it and send it to him just to burn him uh, because he's such a loser that dresses up as a superhero uh, very different in this film uh, wow yes yes and that's what i'm saying that the comic is just so down i i just yeah. enjoy it but here it's the opposite she falls madly in love and they're doing it out by garbage dumps in the alleyways i was surprised at that you know we see her pants down getting fucked in the alley <laughs> i thought it was appropriate i was happy to see it that way and i'm glad they didn't play it like the comic it sounds like the comic did everything to trounce sentimentality this is still at the end of the day a hollywood movie and they still want to deliver the audience's thrills and cheers and we want to see Dave and Katie get together and it would not be satisfying for him to go through all of this abuse and pummeling and not get what he wanted at the start of this movie I, I agree although honestly I kind of thought he was going to get the teacher I mean am I the only <laughs> one did they have- <laughs> Why did they have that teacher in there? I guess just to let us know early that he had sexual longing. I, I thought it went back to the missing mother thing. I, you know, uh, some Oedipal uh, thing. Um, I, I just thought he was a teenage perv. He's whacking off to African women <laughs> and uh, his lonely teacher. You mean just a teenager, <laughs> not a teenage perv. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> when I'm watching the scene, again, knowing nothing about the movie, I expected her to reject him because you get that one scene where he's rubbing the tanner on her and she's naked. I mean, how could she not be skeeved out? The way that the scene went completely unfucking realistic you at least need to have right the every romantic comedy scene where she kicks him out and then she's mad at him for a while right they don't even bother with that trope they're just like okay you're straight let's fuck 
And I was fine with yeah. it, though, because it was a happy ending. It's what you want to see, the wish fulfillment. She had said earlier into their relationship that it's so sad that you're gay. Like, this is this character. She wants to feel in power. She wants to deal with hard luck cases where she is the one in a position of authority. She's in control. It's a control issue. So she falls in love with people that she can't have. And then lo and behold, he not only is he available to her, but he's also the this awesome fantasy character that's been in the news. I can imagine it turning quite quickly. I thought it was actually believable the way it went down. And I, I'm glad we didn't have the cliche romantic comedy moment where she kicks him out of her life. That didn't happen. She doesn't really add anything to the main story. When they tried to pull her into the main story, I was confused. I didn't understand how she knew this Razul and was being beaten up by him. I mean, they alleged that he gave her a black eye or something. That was all very confusing. And I know they needed to get there because we needed to see Kick-Ass meet Hit-Girl and Big Daddy, but I thought her character worked much better as a classic heroine than it did as a force for Kick-Ass fighting her problems. Uh, Stuart, I, I mean, come on. It was clearly explained how she knew Razul. She's a teenager who works at a methadone clinic for <laughs> some reason. Like, this is the one thing that th this isn't in the comic book, this whole needle exchange job. I, I don't know mm. why they came up with that. That's the best way they can force a drug dealer story into this movie is that a 17 year old works at a needle exchange i don't even think that's legal like it makes no sense if it's, it's legal it's not safe yes, yes. I've watched well, this movie four or five times and I still don't get this choice. I don't know why they made this decision. I honestly thought that Razul was like her boyfriend the first time I saw it. And now I get that, like, he's just some stalker from the needle exchange. But if he's a drug dealer, why is he going to the needle exchange? Yes. He comes out, he works for D'Amico and he's got a lot of money. Why is he at a needle exchange? He works for D'Amico? Yeah. Yeah, that's that's hinted at later in the film. All right, because I definitely didn't get that at all. I had no clue that he worked for D'Amico. I understood why they would have her volunteer her efforts. They're trying to show that she likes hard luck types, which is why she's hanging out with Dave, because he's a gay guy and getting beat up for it, and she's got sympathy for there. But I can't imagine what she would have sympathy for Razul about. I mean, he has lots of money and power and is obviously dangerous. It was a strange choice to get there. I wondered if there was a character in between in the comic. You're saying it's not in the comic at all? In the comic, no. She never gets involved in this way. Razul, it's just a, a message that Kick-Ass gets from his MySpace page. You actually find out later that it was the boyfriend of uh, this lady who Kick-Ass's dad starts dating at the end of the book. I, I could understand it more if there were people in her methadone clinic that were being harassed by Razul because he was their drug dealer, but I'm sure they didn't want to introduce any more characters than they already had. There's a lot of characters with alternate identities here. They didn't need to clutter the storyline. It, frankly, it's not important enough. We just need to get Dave into a situation of danger and Razul works, but it was a little confusing. We needed a scene with Razul and her. I think that would have clarified everything yeah. if we had actually had just one moment or even in flashback with one of those great seamless camera works is as she's talking about it, it spins around and we see her and Razul doing whatever it is that they do. But I mean, she's really just an object of lust in this movie. She's not that deep of a character anyway. So when you start getting that, do you know I volunteer at the needle exchange? Oh, no, I didn't know that. It, it's not really needed. And when you try to make her the damsel in distress in this way that Kick-Ass has to kind of save by going and fighting Razul, it, it didn't quite work for me. 
Yeah. But then we get to the fight at Razul's, which does work for me. I, I just love how everybody reacts when they see Kick-Ass in the costume. You know, they're all high People anyway. It's like he's a, a hallucination. Yes. Bad bomb trip or something. <laughs> <laughs> they did the brown acid by mistake. I, I got to say, you know, people talk about uh, Hit Girl and all of the things that she does. The most shocking thing for me in the whole movie is that after she's laid waste to all of the bad guys, like it's not a shock that she, you know, runs a sword through Razul and takes out all the other guys. And frankly, we need her to be that good because nobody wants to see a little girl actually get beat up by these heavies or, or really take it on the chin. But the hoe, the bimbo, <laughs> I, I could not believe that she did what she did to the bimbo because she runs not one but two swords through her. And obviously that woman couldn't do anything. I mean, she had no position of power. But she was trying to escape. It felt like a scene out of a horror film, right? Where mm-hmm. Hit Girl is like Jason coming after her. I had the same reaction. It's like, wow, that is harsh. I thought when you said you had one problem it was going to be the C word, the see you next Tuesday. Oh, I don't even care about that. I, I feel like people have turned that into something. And I think that's much more of an American taboo. I mean, I, again, I, I, I've lived in European countries and that's just more of a normal swear. It's not that big of a deal. Yeah, it feels uh, British. It, yeah, yeah, especially with the British director. Yeah, and the writer who's Scottish. I mean, I think that was Miller's way of going, ooh, look how edgy we are. We're going to put the C word in here and it's going to be coming from the mouth of a, a little girl. Now, an American audience I think that is going to be shocking, though, especially if you don't know what kind of movie you're going into when you walk in. Here's the thing we all need to cop to. None of us are parents, right? So if you had a a daughter and you would not want her to see this movie, you would not want her to turn around and say that to you. And kids are imitators. They see something. They think it's funny. They're going to do it. So, no, I, I can imagine that there are a lot of parents up in arms about it, and they're not wrong. You would not want... Uh, a child to see and imitate Hit Girl. And listen, if if the most shocking thing about Hit Girl's introduction, because this is the first time we see Hit Girl in the purple wig and the knives, if the most shocking thing about her introduction is that she says, cunt, something's wrong with you. I mean, her introduction is this spear, sword spear type weapon through a guy's chest. You don't know really where it comes from until he falls down. And there's an 11 year old girl standing there and she proceeds to cut off arms and, you know, stab that woman twice through the chest. I mean, Uh, you know what I loved about it was her gleeful smile and her like fun looks at Dave like, you want to get in on this? Yes. I love that acting. Like she, she kind of gives these coy little looks to him after every kill. I just, it says so much about the character. And when I read the comic, she shows up and you're like, what the fuck's going on with this little girl? But you don't get the acting, the facial expressions that really sells the scene. Yeah. I've never seen this girl in anything else, but she's phenomenal in this. Okay, well, I've seen her in two other movies, and she always plays as preternaturally mature people. 500 Days of Summer, she was the one giving advice to the guy in love, and then Let the Right One In, or Let Me In was the American version that she was in. She's a brutal killer, and she's always great. I hear she's up for Hunger Games, which is a very popular book series about kids that kill each other for sport, and she's she's getting a rep for it. I think she's great at it, and I think she's got a big career ahead of her. She, we, this may be our... Jody Foster. Depending on how the gross spirit goes, you never know. If, if she if she turns ugly, we won't see much of her, but I'm I'm guessing she'll turn out just fine. And I want to say I feel like as a culture, for better or for worse, and maybe this is a damning of our culture, maybe maybe we shouldn't be happy about this, but I definitely feel like the idea of young women killing people 
is becoming more normal. I mean, we just had this movie <laughs> that came out, Sucker Punch. It's all about young girls kicking ass. We got this movie, Hannah, that's coming out in a week or so. It's about a girl assassin. We're becoming more and more comfortable with child killers. What I think it is, because there was a lot of on the feminist comic blogs, especially when the movie came out, and a lot of them praised Hit Girl because they're like, you know what? Young boys have had these role models, for better or for worse, you know, these violent role models their whole life. And finally, we're getting our, you know, there's not a Wonder Woman movie out there. For some reason, Hollywood can't put out a, a Wonder Woman movie. But at least now we have Hit Girl. We have, you know, someone for young girls to look up to, someone that's going to kick ass and take names and ain't going to take anyone's shit. Some people do see that as a positive thing, and they're, they're happy that they're seeing more of that in cinema. I think anyone that can understand it's just a movie can really enjoy it and, and model it. I'm more concerned when people model behavior and don't really understand the difference. But yes, <laughs> I have no problem with her being celebrated as a feminist hero as long as we understand this only works in this context. I mean, I mean Arnie, how many hit girls have we seen at conventions since this movie came out? I knew walking out of theaters, I knew that at Comic-Con that year, the outfits to be would be hit girl and Big Daddy. And I wasn't wrong. This movie is Hit Girl's movie. She takes this movie over. What I want is a Hit Girl sequel. I don't care about Kick-Ass. I want Hit Girl. She takes this movie over. I like that Kick-Ass grounds it, though. No, he does. He does ground it, yes. Hit Girl is in a superhero movie. She is in, you know, Batman Begins or something. Dave is what brings this movie into the comedic realm that I like. I don't know that I would like a Hit Girl movie that didn't have this kind of grounded humor and sensibility. But yeah, one last thing about this scene that I really liked is that Dave also got a little bit of an upgrade after a couple of fights where he's got his ass kicked. I like that he tasers Razul because, again, it, it was realistic but also unexpected expected at this point you just kind of expect him to pull out the sticks again Mm -hmm. no it's totally unexpected in in the comic they kind of set this up he uses pepper spray and his dad gives him pepper spray after he got hit by the car the first time to protect himself against any mugger so you it was foreshadowed here i like how unexpected it was all of a sudden you got razul with these tasers in his forehead being shocked i mean it's comedic and and it's shocking i I, it worked really well and we also get introduced to big daddy at this scene he's standing outside with the sniper rifle giving the instructions this is the the only outfit where I felt like, all right, he's dressed like a low-rent Batman. Everything else seemed pretty original to me, but he looked just like Batman from the Burton films. But if he wasn't doing Adam West, that would be a problem. The fact that he calls attention to it because Nick Cage knows, it's great. We like that. And I love the fact, I love the way that it finally cements something that has been under the periphery. All this time, the mob boss has been hearing word that there's this Batman that's stealing money from him and causing these problems. And we as the audience think that they might be talking about kick-ass. We do not actually think that there is a Batman doing what it is. So when we finally see him, it confirms what that guy said at the beginning, and ha ha ha, he was killed wrongfully for telling the truth. I mean, I thought that was clever. I also like the little touch of giving Nick Cage the Morgan Spurlock mustache. Yeah, I always, you get that scene where he, he shows him putting on his mustache. I'm like, it's kind of weird, but okay. <laughs> it, it, it's this odd touch that works. I don't know why it works. It's just so out there. I, I got to think that's one of the things he came up with as well. But yeah, I, 
I, I like that he he really does change his persona when he becomes this big daddy character. You're telling me in the original comic he did not operate from uh, vengeance, that he did not want to get back at the mob boss for anything that had been done to him. No, he's just this loser who got bored with his life and kidnaps his kid. There's nothing heroic about him at all except he could kick ass harder than anyone else in the town. Yeah, if they had played it that way, it absolutely weren't. I like the way that they tell the backstory. But telling backstory is hard because we already had the origin stories for Kick-Ass. So they come up with the ingenious thing that he is a obviously a comic book fan and has been writing his own story in graphic novel form and that we watch it as a graphic novel. I thought that worked really well. It caught us up to speed. It told us everything we needed to, and it didn't disrupt the narrative. I completely agree, and I like that it's also the introduction to Hit Girl and Big Daddy's Lair, and I'm fond in now playing retrospectives of misquoting or using that line, if you put a gun on the wall in the first act, you have to shoot someone in the third act. They put a lot of fucking guns on that wall that they're going to have to use in the third act. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, another term for that is Chekhov's gun, uh, coming from the Russian writer, and you have Chekhov's bazooka in this (laughs) film, which impressed the hell out of me that they actually stuck to the rule. I thought they were going to play the bazooka off as a joke, but no! It's the last thing fired, right? It's the very last weapon fired, but they did use it. They do figure out how to get it in there, and you're so happy when they do. It's such a satisfying way of implementing it after so many false starts. You know, one of the moments that I like that takes place right after this whole hit girl, big daddy introduction is you have Kick-Ass go back to his home, and he's totally downtrodden. He just saw two real superheroes, and he realizes he's still this loser. Yeah, he got a little bit of popularity when he put on the mask, and he had his YouTube fame, but here he is a loser again because again there's people better than him and i just thought it was a very real teenage moment it's not a long moment but it really worked for me it's just one of those scenes that sticks out in my mind when i think about this film i agree and i like that you know earlier in his self-training montage you see him trying to roof jump but he's too afraid and that's what drives it home this time is hit girl roof jumps and she wants him to follow and he's just too scared to make that jump my only gripe, and again, really minor, is how many times in this movie does Dave Lazuski give up being kick-ass? He gets stabbed, he's going to quit, but he doesn't. And then he meets Big Daddy and Hit Girl, he realizes how second-rate he really is, he's going to give up, but doesn't. And then Katie says, I don't want you to do it anymore. Well, shit, he'd, he'd been quitting this whole movie, so he's he's going to quit, but then Red Mist calls him and he doesn't. It's like... I know they did that in Spider-Man 2. It's a big thing. The Spider-Man no more from the comics that I know. But it was like he's quitting again three times in one movie. And then he quits at the very end of the movie. Yeah, well, they do seem to do it a lot, but it does seem to be a tradition of superhero movies. I think about Superman, too, and how he gives up his superpowers. He goes into that magical chamber and has the power sucked out of him so he could be with Lois and be I mean, human. you even have that in Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight where he's willing to give up Batman to be with the girl. I mean, yeah, it, it is a common trope in superhero stories. But usually they only do it once per movie. <laughs> I I agree that it was a little tiresome the third time around. You'd ask yourself why Big Daddy and Hit Girl even want to be involved with Kick-Ass, but it's because of Chloe Moretz and the way she plays it that I get it. You know, she laughs at the idea of getting a pony and being a little girl, and, you know, she wants to be the tough little soldier her dad is making her into, 
But she's got a crush on Dave, and I like how it comes out in little ways and how she's the one that sees the potential in him. She's the one, when Big Daddy is calling him ass kick, (laughs) she's the one that defends him and still brings him in the loop. She would never admit it out loud, but I think that she would very much like to have a relationship with Dave one day. And and that sexual tension is something familiar in the superhero movies, too, with Catwoman and Batman. I mean, I, I feel like, again, this movie is very knowledgeable about its subject matter and takes, uses, and subverts the things we've all seen and loved before. I didn't get a crush feeling off of her at any point, maybe because she's just so young. I didn't get that. What I got out of it was, you know, she wanted more kids to play with. You know, she all of these kids are really isolated. Dave's the least isolated of them all. He has a circle of friends. Hit Girl has no friends. Chris has no friends. And so you see both Hit Girl and Chris kind of reaching out for friendship and they both reach to Dave. Yeah, for me, it very much seems like she wants a play date. And if she's going to be attracted, just not not sexually or anything like that, just attracted to someone, it's going to be someone that wants to be a superhero. I mean, that's what she's grown up with since she was five and her dad took custody of her. That's what she's going to want. So it works for me that she wants a play date. She wants a friend. And that's going to be kick ass because he's the only other person that's willing to put on a costume and do that. Yeah, and it's it's similar to what Chris is going through as well. When he comes into the picture, I got to say, it was a real surprise how much he remained a villain in the picture. I thought for sure his story arc would have been about coming around and using his superpowers against his father. I never anticipated that he would actually end up being the bad guy to the end. I agree. I thought the same thing. When he creates his red mist persona and he starts enjoying the friendship and the communication and that scene that you you know you said you didn't like the song crazy but where they're just two guys going around in a car and dancing it's like you know you see that he's finally getting that friendship so i too thought that at the end he might be one of the heroes just to clarify i didn't say i didn't like it i said that it just takes you out of the movie that you are suddenly not in the moment as much. I mean, you have to have that bromance moment, though, for <laughs> the betrayal later to have any emotional impact. And so how else did you want them to go about that scene? They, they had to have some kind of either, you know, dance scene or, or, or something. Yeah, no, I, see admittedly, admittedly, it's yeah, it's they can't spend too much time on them becoming friends and and Red Mist earning kick ass trust. Why not just have a silly night at the Roxbury kind of dance <laughs> in the car? Thing? But no, it's fine. But I always thought because of the way it was being introduced that after he realizes the ramifications of what he's done, when he realizes that Kick-Ass must actually die for what he's set up to do and how he's angry at his father for making that decision, well, obviously that means he's going to use his superpowers to save Kick-Ass and and come to his side. And that is never on the table. You know what I love about this is that you always wonder. I love movies where you don't know what's going to happen next. I'm tired of movies where I can tell you the next beat before it happens. With Chris, I didn't know which way it would go. Now, Stuart, he does stick up for Kick-Ass when they originally capture him and Big Daddy and they shoot Hit Girl. Right. They say, no, Kick-Ass isn't involved. Let him go. Let him go. It's not right. to the very end that he turns on him. Well, that's, I mean, that's what I'm saying. When he says, let him go, and the dad says no, and the dad's been telling him no the whole movie, well, what's the obvious character arc? 
you aren't going to tell me no anymore, and I'm going to stop this from happening. And that does not come into play. But there's also the fact that he wants to be his dad. And so I, I think that also plays a part in it. He wants to be his dad, and if that means he's got to take out this friend, that's what it means. If but what's wants- more appealing? Would you rather be the dad living a very stuffy, not really that exciting life? I mean, I guess it's it's rich, but it looks so miserable up there. I don't know. It, I, I got to say, I'd much rather be Red Mist fighting crime with kick-ass than I would want to be just some mafia don. Chris's whole reason he becomes Red Mist is to catch these superheroes. So I guess he never had pure intentions. So I guess for me, it wasn't that much of a problem. I'm going to do the brocking. Come down the middle. Because I see that that was always his intention. But by the same token, when you see him having fun with a friend and his naivete at thinking Kick-Ass is going to get out of it and he's still going to be able to be friends with Kick-Ass after he uses Kick-Ass and the first thing he does when he walks into that lair is shoot Hit-Girl. He shoots an 11-year-old girl, presumably killing her, and he has no remorse about that. It's just showing an amorality, probably from upbringing, and a naivete, but he wants it both ways. And it's in this movie he learns he can't have it both ways and has to make his decision. And the decision he makes to go evil is probably the right one at that moment, because even if he chose to go good, he he shot an 11-year-old girl out a window. That may be hard to come back from, but obviously that was one of the big, obvious, nonsense surprises of the movie is if you introduce hit girl in the first scene wearing a bulletproof vest and taking bullets we know that when she gets shot she's going to be just fine so they know that we know she's not dead did you ever expect hit girl to forgive red mist for shooting her i mean even if he decided to aid them, honestly I, yes. she would have still killed him at the end <laughs> honestly i that's where i saw it going and let me be clear I'm happy at what I got. It's better what we got. I'm not saying I disliked it. What I'm saying is they really surprised me because I thought I knew the character. But in a good way. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. In a, it, it's much better to play it this way and to have him be the supervillain next time than it would be to have them just be Batman and Robin. Although, let me say, again, this is so minor, but I felt it was a bit of a misstep because how many times have we seen this trope of like the Trojan horse where you pretend to be the hero's friend and you're going to betray them? I mean, I'm thinking of uh, the guy in Firestarter did it. Um this is your go-to reference for something that's cliche. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm so tired of that Firestarter trick. Uh, Karate Kid Part Three, where he's pretending yes. to train Larusso. Oh, Karate Kid Three. When will they stop imitating that? Well, I'm trying to think of non-superhero cases because there's so many superhero cases too. If you portray Dave as somebody who's familiar with comic books and he knows the lore and he's referencing the lore, and the fact that Red Mist is sitting there smoking weed, oh. That's 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 a sign he's evil, Dave. You should catch on to that. I felt like Dave should have had a little bit more distrust if he's so comic savvy. The only frame of reference that I had through superhero movies is Unbreakable, where the relationship between Bruce Willis and Mr. Glass is one of friendship through most of the movie. And then the twist ending is that he actually discovers, oh, my God, I'm your supervillain. That's how it plays out here. Uh, very much of like, I was sure that these guys were going to remain friends by the end. And the twist of suddenly realizing, oh, no, I'm the bad guy. I'm your arch nemesis. I'm the Joker to your Batman. I thought it worked. It it works better here than Unbreakable. I thought it was a nice surprise. 
completely agree. I liked how it did play out. And then what did you guys think of that scene when they're playing back the Teddy cam of Big Daddy? This is where the 28 Days Later music comes in. And it's just that music is so fucking haunting and so fucking amazing that it made that scene seem like the first really brutal scene of the movie. I, I think it actually makes it feel more brutal than it is because I, whenever I think back, I'm like, oh man, this is an awesome scene. I was watching, I'm like, well, there's no real big choreographic fights here. It's kind of just more shooting out. I mean, it, it's a great scene, but I think the music makes it even better. Like when I try to think back on it, I just have a much more intense vision of it because of that music than when I actually sit down and watch it. And I think it's telling that the hit girl is not accompanying him with him when he goes on that killing rampage. Is that we finally get the idea that there's a responsible parent in there somewhere with Nick Cage's McCready that he won't take her into that kind of environment. He will give her only what he thinks she can handle. Junkies, but uh, mob bosses are going too far. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's a step up. If it were a video game, that would definitely be an <laughs> earlier level. That That warehouse thing is definitely a higher level boss. <laughs> So Big Daddy and Kick-Ass are about to be executed in front of a live webcast and another brutal, brutal scene. You know, this movie has so much comedy and things, but when it gets hard, it gets hard to watch. This scene is hard to watch for me. It is the only time I can think of where the violence is not pleasant to watch. I think it's earned it by this point. It's gradual. It's building up to some horrific violence. And by this point, you want to see some real danger. You already think Hit Girl and Big Daddy are invincible. You need to see them vulnerable at some point we know dave is but we need to see him put in some real danger now he's tied up now he can't get away he can't wander out in the street and get hit by a car and saved by an ambulance i mean they really they have to ratchet up the danger i mean that that's that's how you do it in these kind of movies is every you know it's like a video game every threat has to get worse and worse as it goes on i love the scene it is brutal but one misstep is i hate that the voiceover goes on this tangent of do you think i'm gonna live just because i'm talking to you haven't you seen american beauty it's like oh shit you, you, I, I liked that. that. <laughs> I hated it. I hated it. Yeah, that was obnoxious. It was. It was It was way too self-referential and needed to stop. I never thought of Dave as being smarmy. And to me, that's a smarmy comment. Uh, here's the thing is he's been giving this voiceover the entire movie, right? And so we get this voiceover of how it really hurt. And I'm just going with it. I'm not even thinking about it as a voiceover. And then he draws so much attention to how it's a voiceover. I think it hurts the scene overall. And it goes on too long he like gives four or five movie examples it's like dude just move on sin city sunset boulevard and american beauty just three arnie All right. i wrote them down <laughs> because I, I like that line. i don't know i like that you always talk about getting drawn into movies and i guess i just don't have that where i get so involved that i forget i'm in a movie i'm always thinking okay where are they going to try to go with this and you know what are the the, the cliches they're trying to subvert or they're playing up to so I, I guess I like when they give those winks and nods. I knew when I figured out that Nick Cage wasn't the villain, I immediately knew at that point in the bowling alley scene, I knew he was going to be dead. Too expensive for the sequel was my thinking. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Speaking about being out of the movie. All right. Well, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> but when he died, it, it was just so tragic and heartbreaking because he's lit on fire, yet even on fire, he's still giving hit girl and instructions on how to kill the guys and putting her first. 
Yes, that's what I love about this. And the way he does it, I mean, he's on fire, but he's like a maniac. He's yelling out his different orders, you know, go to code, kryptonite. You know, he's just <laughs> he's just so over the top that even when he's dying, he's playing this superhero role. And it's, it's an amazing scene. You got the strobe light. You, we talked about the video game, the Doom references, where it shows it from Hit Girl's perspective with the night vision, shooting these guys, slicing their throats. It's an, a great action scene. I mean, this is, this is where I was talking about, if you just want to watch watch this as an action movie it's got great action and if you don't even want to think about the you know all the subversion and the in the various but comments, i but i want going you to on. i don't want anyone to watch this movie and just think this is a fun action movie this i think that that would be a disservice to what they're getting at with the violence. No, you're 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 not going to get everything out of it. But I'm saying it still works on that level. You know, Stuart, we talked to part of our debate with Blade Runner is that yes, as a, as an artistic piece, it's great. But you know, Brock and myself, I think we both said we've fallen asleep while trying to get through it previous times. This it keeps you entertained the whole time. It, it works on that level, and I enjoy that. That the message might get to more people because it is such an enjoyable film to watch, and it. Has these great action scenes. I went in just wanting an action movie. I didn't expect any subversion or any major themes here of father-son relations. And yet, even I, who would be the most willing to overlook this kind of subtext, I was found myself thinking about this, which is why I think this is such an amazing film. Just an, absolutely, because it doesn't preach, but it's there. And it works on so many different levels that if you're looking for a comedy, if you're looking for action, if you're looking for drama, or you're looking for smart commentary on superhero films. It's all in here. So with Big Daddy Dead, I'm big on looking at motivations behind characters and especially with hero films where the hero is supposed to be portrayed in a good light. I'm thinking it stays fault. Then the movie calls it out, which I love, is when a hit girl goes, it's your fault he's dead. It is. He fucked up and it killed Big Daddy. Yes and no. I mean, I think that's a little harsh of a judgment. It's very clear at this point, Dave does not have what it takes to be a superhero. He was just, he's too naive. He did it for the wrong reasons. He did it for the vain reasons. It's Red Mist's fault. I mean, we should be clear. It is Red Mist's fault that the guy's dead. But I, I mean, my I, thing is, why did Big Daddy trust him so quickly to bring this other character with? I mean, you know. He didn't. So. You, you saw him pause. You saw that he was like, nice to meet you. And then, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. I thought he was just doing the Adam West thing with that. <laughs> he was. It was a, it was a twofer. But, uh, you know, he definitely, he was surprised and he was still processing it. And if the scene had played out for a couple more minutes, if they hadn't immediately gone in there and shot Hit Girl, he probably would have figured it out. That said, I can understand Dave's feeling of guilt in the role that he played in that. And I definitely feel like it's what motivates him to come out of retirement one more time and become a real killer. Did you guys know what was in the box? No. How nope. would you? I did. I, I, I've I never read the comic, but, you know, they play it up. You see them shopping online. You don't know what they're shopping for. And then you see this big box and how cool it is. And I, I don't know how I figured it out. Maybe it's because I've seen these things in real life. I've seen the jetpack guy. He's seen Boba Fett at conventions flying it. Yes. I, I've <laughs> seen the guy with the jetpack from Mexico who actually can fly like it. And this whole movie's so grounded in reality. I'm like, all right, what would fit in that box that you'd strap Gatling guns? to it's a jetpack no that that was a huge surprise when, when you see the jetpack yeah. and again it's one of those moments where it could come off totally stupid and wrong but i think they play it just right they built it up just enough where you're expecting something that might be stupid or wrong so it, it, again a risky move that works in this film and you wonder where dave is during this whole time when hit girl you know she almost seems to not need him if she had just carried one more clip
clip of bullets yes. <laughs> because she goes in and kills every single one of D'Amico's men, except for like four. <laughs> and can I say, you know, I, this entrance of her just walking down the hall, taking everyone out. I mean, first of all, she comes up with that little rope thing and, and makes that guy shoot himself. And then she's jumping around. She shoots a guy in the kneecap. He falls down. His shotgun goes off, blows off his head. I mean, this is the kind of action stuff I like where they really plot it out. I don't like Rambo with a giant Gatling gun just mowing everyone down. I like some style of my kills, and I just love this scene. I just was wondering why it was a library. <laughs> well, you know, mob bosses have lots of times to read. Yes. <laughs> I never saw him hold a book the whole time, but oh well. rich people just own books, probably because they're old and rare, and they're rich. What else are they going to spend their money on? Guns. That's, yeah. what, that's what Big Daddy did. <laughs> this movie has lots of answers to that. I, it, maybe it's Chris D'Amico's comic book collection. I don't know. <laughs> I really was impressed with this scene because by this point, this is Hit Girl's third big massacre montage. And yet they've ratcheted it up so much that you're not tired of it yet. The choreography and even the little bit of slow-mo they used, it all worked. I actually liked the turn about how Red Mist used a superhero outfit to infiltrate the superheroes. And then Hit Girl dresses in civilian clothing to infiltrate the mobsters. I liked all of it, but I you mentioned that we've seen it before. I was feeling that until she got trapped behind the kitchen counter and we suddenly saw her vulnerability. This is the first time we actually become semi-worried about her. We're not really worried because we think she's going to be all right. But when she's out of ammo and she's in the kitchen and there's still a few guys left and there's a bazooka, (laughs) we're we're starting to wonder how it's all going to turn out. And I I love to say hello to my little friend. I just loved it. Yeah, well, I was was thinking about Scarface on several occasions with its over-the-top violence. So I'm glad that they... They know what what we know. I mean, they let us know that it's okay to be smart and to think about all of the things that they're referencing. They're they're doing it intentionally. Then we have Dave in the jetpack, and we get to the final fight: Dave versus Red Mist, and Hit Girl versus Frank. And Frank, uh, this again was a hard scene for me to watch just because I I don't consider myself a prude by any means, but seeing a big guy beat up an 11-year-old girl, a little hard. Yes. It was a little familiar. Did you guys, did it remind you of anything else you guys have ever seen? Because I had a very distinct callback. True Romance, the scene where uh, yes. Trisha Arquette gets the shit kicked out of her, and you think this is really the it for her, and then she comes screaming back with the top of a toilet bowl and just kills him. You, now that you say it, you're right, because when you said True Romance, that's the scene that comes to mind, is when she has to stab him in the foot and hit him with the toilet bowl. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. that is another hard scene where you see this girl who's been like on top of everything and just getting pummeled. And, you know, we've seen her be so good, it's hard to believe she was taking down so easily by D'Amico. But I'm glad that we fear D'Amico. I think it's important that he's not just another chump. For much of the movie, he looks clueless. He looks ineffectual. He's the rich guy sitting behind a desk in a penthouse who really doesn't know what's going on. So to finally know that he's not just doing karate in between his other feat activities, this guy really knows fighting. It's important, but there's no way we're not going to be discomforted at watching a grown man beat up a little girl like this. It is very hard to watch. And and that's what I like is that how far they push it, because it is hard to watch. And by this point in the the movie, you become desensitized Okay, you're over the shock of this 11 year old girl slaughtering people. You need something to continually push it in your face. She's an untouchable. We don't think anything could ever get to her. And the movie lets us know that nobody is untouchable in this scene. 
I also like, though, is that she starts using this letter opener to slice it up. And we've seen her do a lot of horrific acts, but I, I don't know. There's something about the intimacy, uh, how close range she is with just this letter opener slicing. And everything just seems more violent in this final confrontation. And I think the movie needs it. Outside of the action, it's emotional. I mean, this is the fucker who basically his actions ruined her father's life, which in effect, butterfly effect killed her mother. And then no butterfly effect killed her father. So you get that there's so much behind this fight versus every other fight in this movie where it's just been very superhero. There's a big personal motivation between the way they squared off that she took on D'Amico, whereas Red Mist betrayed Kick-Ass and the two of them go off to fight in the karate room. Mm-hmm. Or if you can call that fighting, but yes. That was the only fight I didn't like was the two of them in the karate room because have you guys been unfortunate enough to see the Transformers movie yes. where everything's so close up, you just can't tell what the fuck's going on? Yes. That's how I felt about that's that's what I remembered in this scene is that we were seeing close ups of arms and sticks. And I'm like, what the hell? I, I saw red and green flashes and then they both fall down. I'm just glad at least they try to use weapons. I thought it was going to break out. And, you know, you see this with like on South Park with Cartman, who talks this big game and then he breaks out into a fight. And it's like this sissy slap fight. <laughs> I love I mean, that. It, it, at least it didn't go that far. But yeah, you could tell that's secondary. They needed to get those characters out of the room so we could get to the the actual real confrontation between Hit Girl and D'Amico. And Hit Girl loses. That's shocking. She does not come back. You know, in so many movies, the hero has to take their beating so that their final victory seems like they overcame it. She doesn't come back. Well, they had to give something to kick ass. Let's face it. He (laughs) is a fairly worthless character. She really didn't need him to take down these guys. She made a point of guilting him into coming to work for her. So he's got to do something to, to earn that. And they had to use the bazooka. I mean, it's just, it was the right choice, but <laughs> love the bazooka. Talk about overkill. Yes. yes. He has to finally have that superhero moment. And I love that he just uses like the so overused line. Try picking on someone your own size. Yeah. I love it. It was totally not a clever, like I just groaned and rolled my eyes. Not even a clever line. Like that's how pathetic he is. He doesn't even, you know, Spider-Man's known for all his one liners when he's beating up the bad guys and he kick ass and that's the best he could come up with but it was so perfect (laughs) no it totally fits the character but then they're so happy at killing D'Amico and Red Mist is just so nothing they fly off and just leave him there and you can tell he's like hurt that he is considered such a non-threat that they just fly away (laughs) forgettable I mean that has been his bane of his existence is that he's just in the background forgotten not seen as any kind of threat so it really makes me excited for a sequel in which he could actually be what he wants to be too that the journey is him becoming the supervillain that he's always been inspired to be is that what's going to happen in the comic is are we familiar with what's going on now with kick-ass two I am such a fan of this movie. I have the first issue of Kick-Ass 2. I, I'm about to give up and just wait for the trade paperback in two years because they're, they're coming out so slowly. But in the first one, it does hint that Red Mist went off to France to kind of lay low and do a lot of drugs and amass a team of supervillains. And it's about Kick-Ass forming a team of superheroes. And Hit-Girl, surprisingly, isn't part of that because she's back with, in the comic, her mother lived, I guess. And 
she's with the police officer who was her guardian who had been looking for her all those years and her mother, and they don't want her to be revisiting that tortured life her father put upon her. But Kick-Ass is out there and there's a whole bunch of new fake superheroes who consider him, you know, the bee's knees. Miller said is he wants to do three story arcs. You know, Kick-Ass was the first one. Now he's doing Balls to the Wall, where it's more of a focus on supervillain teams. And in the third story, it's basically like the rise of this Justice League type team. And and that's where it ends. You know, you, you have the final confrontation between good and bad. And I don't know. I do agree that I walked out of this movie wanting a sequel. I check regularly on if there will be. Unfortunately, it did underperform. And I think now everybody's waiting to see what Vaughn does with X-Men. You know, and I found out from the special features, they talked to Vaughn about doing X-Men 3 before they got Ratner. They talked to Vaughn about Thor. He went off and did Kick-Ass and then he became the shoe-in for X-Men First Class. If X-Men does great, I think that he'll have the clout if he wants to return to the world of Kick-Ass that he'd be able to. And if X-Men doesn't, then we've seen the last. I, I really would like a sequel and I'll say right now, and I hope you guys are with me, if they if Vaughn returns and they return and they do the follow-up, I'm their weekend of release for a review. I, I'll be there too. I don't think I have a choice. But I would like to. <laughs> I, I might actually see this movie. I don't think I would run out the weekend it was released to see it, but I definitely would want to see more if they kept up the quality on the other hand maybe they'd fuck it up with a sequel so maybe it's best left alone i just want to see it get another one so we could be taken out of the realm of marvel misfits that we relegated it to it's so much <laughs> better than howard the duck and man thing that i i just feel like it's unfortunate that uh it's all been lumped into the same pile by the same token isn't it good to at least have one movie we recommend <laughs> Oh, yes. Or maybe you don't. Let's find out. Stuart, Jacob, do you recommend Kick-Ass? I do. I am the superhero newbie. My general bias is that I don't care about superheroes that much. I think this still works. Even if you're hesitant to jump into that genre, it's smart. It's aversive. It's even satirical of that genre. It will surprise you. This is not just a dumb action movie. There are plenty of those. A strong recommend for Kick-Ass. I'll agree with you, Stuart. I recommend Kick-Ass. I've already spoke about all the things I like. I mean, if you're in Arnie's camp where you maybe you're not into comic books, but you love the multimedia facet of superheroes and you've seen all the superhero movies, I think this riffs really well. If you have a knowledge of those superhero movies, There's that just adds another layer to this film. You know, I've, I've talked about how I feel this is kind of like a Watchmen light. I think the film Watchmen, I mean, it, Maybe if we ever do a DC retrospective, we'll talk about that more. But that didn't work for me because it's so referential to the comic book world and not necessarily the superhero movie world. The movie just didn't quite work for me, what it was trying to say. Whereas Kick-Ass, it's very much in tune with, hey, superheroes are more known for being on the big screen than being in these dingy little comic book shops. Yeah, that's where they originated from. But now we have Spider-Man and X-Men. and They're these huge money makers. I mean, Disney bought Marvel and Kick-Ass resides in that world and it plays up to those cliches and 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 all those things so it's just a smart film it's so much smarter than you would expect so high recommendation for kick-ass i too really recommend kick-ass it is a strong strong contender honestly for my favorite film from 2010 i mean that is how strongly i feel it is this or social network really it is so good it is so much 
fun, but yet so well done. And it's not bubblegum because it's got so much more to it. I've said it all on this podcast. It is truly a kick-ass film. And I highly recommend you see it. And don't forget, in kind of a pseudo now playing episode, Marjorie Stewart and I saw and reviewed the Broadway musical Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark. And no, we're not starting now Broadwaying. <laughs> no, more like turn off the show uh, before <laughs> someone gets hurt. But do turn us on because I think you'll want to hear what we have to say about Swiss Miss. That is over on Marvelicious Toys, the Marvel Collecting Podcast Marjorie and I do with a guy named Justin. You can find it at MarveliciousToys.com and the Turn Off the Dark review is in our March episode. For March 7th. And you can listen to all of our other reviews in our archives at NowPlayingPodcast.com where we've reviewed... Such movies as Tron, Star Trek, Terminator, Predator, Friday the 13th, a lot of different series, as well as the other two episodes in this Marvel Misfits series, all available at NowPlayingPodcast.com. And we are kind of now hitting the pause button a little bit on our Marvel comic book retrospective. We're going to be kind of spreading this out a little bit. You could either say we're prolonging the magic or you could say Stuart can't bear to watch superhero movies only for eight months in a row. Yeah, that's that's definitely true. <laughs> Plus, one of our most highly anticipated and requested series is just about to be underway. Scream opens in theaters uh, April 14th. We're going to be there reviewing all the Scream movies starting next week. Wes Craven is shaking at Stewart's return. <laughs> <laughs> You go check out our Wes Craven's New Nightmare podcast to find out why. So we're going to be doing Screams 1 through 4 in the next few weeks. And then after that, we are looking at X-Men. So we will be returning to Marvel Comics. But more importantly, Arnie, Scream is not the only series that is starting up next week. No. While you, I, and Marjorie are watching the Scream films, Marjorie's the newbie on there because she is the only one of the hosts who hasn't seen the Scream series. Where'd you find her? <laughs> you, I, and Brock are going back into the water. Yes, we are. It's getting to be summertime or at least spring. I can pretend anyway, right? <laughs> it's always summer here in California. It's time for Jaws. This is a big one for me. I love Jaws. I'm going to put it out there right now. I want to return to all of the films, see what they're about. Uh, it's got some high highs. I remember there being some low lows. And you, Arnie, you're going to be the newbie, right? I am ashamed to admit, although it's been on several of our podcasts, I've never seen Jaws. I never felt I had to because it's so in the pop culture. I felt like I've seen Jaws without having seen Jaws. So this will be my time as the newbie. But this is a bonus podcast we're doing kind of like Child's Play. This is going to be for people who donate to Now Playing starting now. So you have to donate $10 or more using the PayPal donate link at the bottom of our homepage at nowplayingpodcast.com. And as our thank you gift, as our little tote bag, we're not selling the podcast, but as our tote bag, we are giving you the Jaws series. And because we didn't feel it was quite long enough for movies, we wanted to go, you know, five for the donation. We're also reviewing the spiritual sequel to Jaws, Deep Blue Sea. What? We are? <laughs> yes, I, I forgot I didn't to tell sign you. up for this. Oh, no. <laughs> the I, boat is sinking. <laughs> uh, my enthusiasm is, anyway. Deep Blue Sea. Oh, okay. That's the smart sharks, right? Yes, the smart sharks and Samuel L. Jackson. <laughs> 
Oh, okay. All right. So that will be the fifth bonus podcast in our retrospective series. And because so many of you support now playing, even by donating when we're not doing these drives and things, for those who want to go above and beyond and donate more than the $10, and we're not going to say what the magic number is for this, but if you donate a certain amount that we have in our mind over $10, you're not just going to get one bonus podcast like we did in October. You're going to get three bonus podcasts. Podcast as Marjorie Stewart and I are here for Poltergeist. Yes, this has got to be the most exciting series we've tackled yet. I really, Poltergeist is the movie from my childhood that was my absolute favorite until Aliens came out, at least. My absolute favorite movie. I cannot wait to return them. I have not seen them in, in at least a decade and maybe even more for some of the sequels. Can't wait to return to Poltergeist. Going to be a huge one. You're going to want to spend the money for this, I can tell you. And if you're wondering how they tie together, well, they're both horror-ish film series started by Spielberg. So that's our tie. There you go. (laughs) So Poltergeist and Jaws, you can donate now. We're still in the process of recording and editing, but if you donate, you'll get them as soon as they're done. Hot off the presses. If you donate a little later, then you'll get all of the back ones. And we're just going to keep going through them through April and into May. But on Memorial Day, these get locked up in the archive with Chucky. We've had a lot of people emailing saying, I know it's past Halloween. I want Chucky. Sorry. This is why we do the limited runs. Chucky has not been made available again. We have no plans to re-release these ever again. And if we do, it's not going to be for $10. I'll tell you that. This is, you know, a donation drive. And as our way of saying thank you and giving back to those who are giving to us, Jaws, and if you hit the magic number, Poltergeist, starting right now so you can donate now at nowplayingpodcast.com so thank you all in advance for donating to now playing we really do appreciate your support but with the price of 3d movies <laughs> these days <laughs> and the price of deep blue sea on my psyche <laughs> <laughs> we are hoping that you enjoy the podcast enough that you can donate just a couple bucks there and we're always going to be free that's why scream is the free one we know that that one is one everyone's been asking for everyone's going to be able to get Scream for free. If you like us, if you can't get enough of us, we got Jaws and Poltergeist as well. Yes, this podcast is free. Always remain free. We're not charging for any. These are our thank you to those who help support us. Just a special bonus for them. But when we do pick up Marvel again, I guess it will be tied to Matthew Vaughn, right? So yes, we are going to be looking at the X-Men films with some directors you like, Stuart. Matthew Vaughn, you at least like this. And Brian Singer from The Usual Suspects and Superman Returns. And Brett Ratner from Rush Hour 1 and Rush Hour 2 and Rush Hour 3. So a director I like. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) At least Rush Hour 1. Oh, I just spoiled the Rush Hour retrospective series. (laughs) (laughs) And just to make sure that we cover all of the mutant films... We're going to be reviewing our first made-for-TV movie at Now Playing, Generation X. As all members of Generation X ourselves, I think that should be a real good film about teen angst and coming of age. Generation X, the novel by Douglas Coupland? No, Generation X, the short-lived 90s comic book X-Men spinoff about a bunch of teenage mutants with powers being taught by, I believe, Emma Frost, who is the one of the characters in the X-Men first class. Oh, well, how nice for her. What the hell have I signed on for? <laughs> 
<laughs> at least there's hope that she's just running around in her white bikini, like in the comic. At least maybe there's something to look at there. I don't even know what an Emma Frost is, but I guess I'm about to find out. <laughs> was she in Wolverine? Was Emma, Was that Emma Frost in Wolverine? Yes, she did make a cameo in Wolverine. Okay. So, yeah, so it's a character who's definitely tied to these theatrical films. I haven't seen Generation X since it aired that one time on Fox, but fortunately... A shady booth at Wizard World in Chicago helped me out. Oh, thank you, Shady Booth. So I'll be mailing that disc to you guys to watch, and we will be reviewing it at the start of our X-Men retrospective series, After Screen. Oh, so we're starting strong. Good. <laughs> it can only get better. Well, here's, right. here's the thing. With the Marvel Misfits, I said at the end of Man-Thing that at least we got the two worst movies out of the way for the entire Marvel Comics retrospective. Anyone else have the fear that we've now gotten the best film of the Marvel Comics? comics retrospective out of the way too i i definitely have that fear i'm not quite sure what is in a marvel retrospective i know that i've seen a few of the movies i remember liking a few of the action movies so i don't feel like it's going to be a complete barren desert but when i think about the flaming skull of ghost rider i know <laughs> i'm not even sure we're through the worst of it yet <laughs> well Stuart jacob thank you cunts for joining me for kick ass <laughs> You're welcome. And we'll talk to you next week with Scream. Marvel Misfits retrospective series over, motherfucker. Closing time! Thank you for listening to Now Playing's Marvel Misfits retrospective series, part of our Marvel Comics movie series. Sorry I had to wait, buddy. The movie is starting in ten minutes. It's okay, we're cool. We're only gonna miss the trailers. Yeah, but I want to get some popcorn. When we get in there, get Chris some popcorn, Okay. What do you want to drink? You want a Pepsi? Yeah, that's fine. Get him a Pepsi, and I'll have an Icy. Mixed. Like when they mix the red one and the blue one. And a pack of Twizzlers. Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week as we continue looking at our Marvel misfits, Howard the Duck, Man-Thing, and Kick-Ass. So you don't actually read comics. You can find other Now Playing retrospective series, such as Star Trek, Terminator, Predator, Philip K. Dick, Tron, and many more at our website. Go to NowPlayingPodcast.com and click the archives link to find those series, as well as individual movie reviews such as Avatar, Inception, and Scott Pilgrim vs. The World. Oh, child. You always knock me for a loop. And while at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss the Marvel movie films with other listeners. There's no idea as to who is behind the broadcast of this show, but we could see widespread server crashes. You can also follow Now Playing at Facebook and Twitter, where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post movie mini-reviews. How do I get a hold of you? You just contact the mayor's office. He has a special signal that shines in the sky. It's in the shape of a giant cock. Links to our social media pages are at nowplayingpodcast.com. I feel much better. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. We appreciate your cooperation. You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store, where you can buy Now Playing t-shirts, coffee mugs, mouse pads, and much more. The link to our Cafe Press store is available at our homepage. Any questions? Yeah. Where are my pants? Now Playing's Marvel Comic Book Misfits series is edited by Arnie. I'm way over my head. 
Now Playing is not affiliated with Marvel Enterprises, Universal Pictures, Lionsgate Films, or Artisan Entertainment. The Marvel characters and all that the Marvel Universe contains is the intellectual property and trademark of Marvel Publishing Incorporated, and no infringement is intended. They get the point, Denning! Now Playing is a Venganza Media Production, copyright 2011, all rights reserved. Shows over, motherfuckers. All right, you cunts. Today we're talking about kick ass. <laughs> I was going to throw out a cunt joke. <laughs> but yeah, I was surprised. No, it's just Vince, Vince Vaughn's uh, wrong Vaughn. He did produce Guy Ritchie's Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels and Snatch, two movies I just love. So Same here. But he also did uh, produce Swept Away, which was supposed to be abysmal. With Madonna and, and Guy Ritchie directing that. Let's let's face that, it, Madonna has a <laughs> vagina that sucks the talent out of people. <laughs> Sean Penn got it back later, but Guy Ritchie loved Lockstock Two Smoking Barrel, loved Snatch. Everything after that's very iffy. Although we may talk about Sherlock Holmes later this year. <laughs> yeah, well, I, you know, I yeah, I never have made it through any of his work, so I don't know that I blame Madonna on that. I would just say. All of our characters are missing a mother figure in the series. Oh, you said the series. I was like, Howard the Duck. I'm like, did we meet his family? I'm like, man thing? I don't remember their their, their family tree. I remember trees, but not their lineage. <laughs> but you, you watch uh, Nancy Grace, and they're always talking about, you know, teenage girls posting their fights on YouTube. It, it, you, I mean, I, I thought this movie did that well, where it kind of po- taps in to this new cultural phenomenon where we post all of our dirty acts, our fights that we get into on the Internet for everyone to see. Please tell me that there's somewhere where we can see Hit Girl kill Nancy Grace. <laughs> Arnie, in this post-Tucson world, we can't use that kind of language, please. Please tell me there's somewhere on the internet where I can see Hit Girl slaughter Nancy Grace. <laughs> but it's a rated R film, so is that a big deal? The parents who are up in arms aren't up in arms about kids seeing this movie. It's about, I think they were just upset, A, about the use of the word, because it's like the last taboo word we have. And B, it was the fact that they made an 11-year-old girl say it on set. Uh, you know what? That even that the walls on that word are coming down. It is heavily used in the vagina monologue. So I feel like uh, all words. There are no dirty words left. I, it Stuart, really is. Stuart, you feel a lot of people are going to see the the vagina monologues. You feel that's a big mainstream American <laughs> phenomenon. I, I do. I do. I feel like that. Yeah, I actually do. Am I wrong? When Oprah uses the word, then I'll buy that it's a mainstream word. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we, she's not even comfortable with vagina. She's still you and the JJ thing. So yeah. When that music started, the tra la 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 like for the introduction of Hit Girl, I thought it worked. You get this, you know, all of a sudden you're barraged with this. I love that you knew just how many bars you could la before we get sued. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, This is where the 28 Days music comes in. And it's just 28 Days Later, not 28 Days, which is the Sandra Bullock (laughs) film. Let's make that clear. (laughs) 
He's lit on fire. Ugh, one of my all-time phobias is being lit on I don't know if that's a phobia, but yeah, <laughs> being lit on no, fire. That's, that's not a, an irrational fear at any rate. <laughs> Most people I, don't I, want to be burned. Trisha Arcat gets the shit kicked out of her by Tom Sizemore, and you think this is really the it for her, and then she comes screaming back with the top of a toilet bowl and just kills him. It, it was actually James Gandolfini. Oh, it was? Yeah. Oh, well, I'm, I apologize to James Gandolfini. I would not want to confuse you with Tom Sizemore now. <laughs> <laughs> Both were in that film, but Sizemore was the cop. Gandolfini was the enforcer. Stuart, I enjoyed this movie. So you, are you saying I, an adult, regressed to the mentality of a child? I, I'm saying we all are. Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> look, look, at, look, look at the movies we've watched. Yes, we are. <laughs> Go to code kryptonite. 